Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Military History. This is Boris Karpa. And today is a bit of an unusual show for us because I have here not one guest. I have two guests. I have the editors of the lovely book Armies in Retreat, Chaos, Cohesion, and and Consequences. And because it has two editors, Timothy Hack and Walter Mills, I have both of them here. Timothy is... uh, Deputy Editorial Director at the Modern War Institute at West Point. So quite a distinguished guest. And Walker is is a captain with the Marines, and he is a non-resident fellow with the Brute Kulak Center for Innovation and Future War. And I'm happy to have both of you here today. Thanks for having us. Walker, maybe you will be the one, maybe you will do the honors. Can you tell us a little bit about the book, uh, what its significance is, what it does for us? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to, Boris. Um, So Tim and I came up with this idea, it was probably 2019, Uh, so it's a multi-year project, this kind of stuff goes slow. but we've got 20 chapters in each chapter um, besides the conclusion and the introduction is a specific case study on uh, retreat, withdrawal, uh, retrograde, uh, or a similar type of operation. Um, and we wanted to cast our net pretty wide. So we have a, a large diversity of uh, different uh, geograph- uh, geographic um, examples uh, in a temporal space. Uh, we have stuff going back to um, ancient Greece uh, all the way through uh, the Korean War. Um, and we have different types of authors. Uh, so some of our authors, uh, like Tim and I, are more uh, practitioners, uh, I guess you could say, uh, than full-time academics. Uh, we have some full-time professional academics, um, and we've kind of got uh, folks in between, like advanced uh, graduate students um, as well. And so our our desire was to come up with a volume that was not just uh, for us, uh, uh, for, you know, professional military education as practitioners, uh, but was also useful for uh, academics. So it was, you know, uh, had some academic rigor, and and we did a double-blind peer review with Army University Press. Um, and also to choose case studies that were interesting enough um, that a general audience uh, would find some value there. Um, and I think we were, we were able to do that uh, with the help that we got um, from Army University Press and obviously the uh, chapters that we got from our uh, wonderful readers. Uh, and the last thing that I absolutely have to mention um, is that this book is available for free uh, by Army University Press. So you can go to their website. Uh, you can Google Army University Press, Armies in Retreat, and you'll find the full PDF there. Um, and you can also request from them uh, print copies, uh, and they may or may not have those uh, available. Yes, there's no need to go out and spend money on eBay for this or Amazon. Do not buy it on Amazon. <laughs> 
we don't get the money. Army University Press doesn't get the money. Who knows where the money goes? Sam, I'd like you, you know, you, 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 you have the advantage or maybe the disadvantage of having been on this show before. And so you know that here at the New Books Network, we are creatures of tradition. And so I'm going to ask you a traditional question. How did you and Walker settle on the subject for this book? Well, you know, Walker mentioned that we had to say something up the front. Both Walker and I as government uh, employees in, in, in various guises have to say that the, what we're saying here today is not the official view of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense. This is our personal views as, as, the, as the folks working on this. Now, that said, to answer your specific question, it came out of a gap, right? Like all good scholarship, Oris, I, I think you, you, you poke around and you find something that just doesn't sit right with you. And Walker and I have both written um, for the Army University Press's large-scale combat operations series. We wrote traps, chapters focusing on the Red Army's operations in the Second World War. And we read through those books. That It's, it, it's a great series of, of edited volumes. Um, but they were all very triumphal in nature. They were all about the winners. And Walker and I are sitting here going, yeah, but somebody has to lose, Right. And we don't talk about losing. There was at the same time that this was going on, um, an article was was written by somebody named Angry Staff Officer on his website talking about surrender, specifically the surrender of American and Filipino forces at Bataan in 1942. And I sent it to Walker and I was like, man, this is amazing. We should do a book on it, right? So we had this this idea that sat in the back of our head that while we were writing triumphal narratives, right, of operations in Poland and operations in Manchuria and operations in Berlin, that we didn't cover it. We were, we were missing something. There was something missing in the literature, right? This triumphal narrative that dominates the scholarly publication needed to be examined. And so we started bouncing ideas off of each other, and, and that led to the overarching concept of a book about armies in retreat. And then, you know, kind of as we got the chapters coming in, that's when the subtitle, The Chaos, Cohesion, and Consequences, came about when we started bucketing them into themes, um, as opposed to doing something strictly chronological. But that's that's where it came from, and I think... And I think I'm very pleased, Walker's very pleased um, about the opportunity to fill some of that gap or at least to open the discussion to say, hey, we need to look at the other side. Mm-hmm. Walker, you know, my main background is not in military science. I'm not a military officer. I've made it all to the illustrious rank of corporal. It's only my background is in history. And so maybe you could explain... Mm-hmm to ask what is the perspective, what the importance of this book to people who are students of history rather than of military science? Sure. Um, so, Boris, I think, you know, like I mentioned in the, in the introduction, we wanted to come up with a book that has an appeal beyond just the kind of niche audience of uh, what we call PME, professional military education. Um, which is which is something that you know Tim and I and and uh, other officers in in the military have to go through, um, and so the way we wanted to do that was we sought out um, you know 
serious uh, scholars um, who are going to contribute chapters on their area of expertise and kind of bring out new scholarship. Um, and I think, you know, if you are uh, one of those people, you know that writing a chapter in an edited volume is one of the ways, um, uh, in some ways, maybe maybe a little bit uh, lower threat um, than than a, a more well-known peer-reviewed journal that you can kind of get your scholarship um, out there. And then we had to work with them in the editing process to kind of pull out, okay, you know, so you've written a really, um, a great example is uh, Dr. Uh, Catherine Bateson, uh, who wrote a chapter for us about um, the Civil War and uh, Irish American folk songs and how they dealt with uh, themes of retreat and, and kind of the public eye and, and the political space uh, during and after the war. And she had this really fantastic chapter and she's using her expertise uh, and her scholarship. And then it kind of falls to Tim and I to help with her and with Army University Press tease out, uh, okay, so how, how are we gonna connect this back to what we have for our three key theme, themes? Uh, um, chaos, uh, cohesion, and consequences, right? Because it's it, as an edited volume, we have to, even though we have this diversity of, of chapters and viewpoints, we have to kind of tie it all together. Um, and we do want there to be, you know, lessons that are valuable to a practitioner. And at the same time, uh, a story, a narrative that's interesting to a general reader and, uh, you know, academically rigorous. So it, in some ways, it, it mostly just fell, I, I think, to us as the editors to both message that to our um, authors, like, yes, we know that you're coming from this type of a background, but we're looking for all of these things. And then when it comes down to the editing, trying to pull those things out, uh, if, if that makes sense for us. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Walker. And I am going to... Rotate. I'm going to rotate back to Tim again, if you don't mind. There's one thing which did strike me when I was reading the book, and maybe that's because of my own background in military communications. One thing which is important as communications during your retreat, not just the vertical ones, not just the communication between a commander and his command, but also the communication between, you know, horizontal communications, for example, there's a discussion of, of uh, during the Spanish Civil War of brigades losing the communications between their battalions. So we have horizontal and vertical communications, and... Uh, both of these are very difficult to maintain during a retreat, and it's a problem which people had to deal with in earlier times when uh, the technology was much more primitive, and we still have it as a problem today. So maybe you could discuss this universal problem with us a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think communications are crucial, right? You, my, my radio operators used to say you could talk about us, but you can't talk without us, and and that goes beyond just you know, vertical and, and, and horizontal communications. I mean, they think fundamentally we as people maybe on some level want to know what's going on around us. And if you don't communicate in, in chaotic situations, that's, that causes more problems, whether that's interpersonal relationships or, um, you know, combat operations. And, and 
you know, Walker and I are coming from the Marine Corps. This is a, a book published by Armour University Press, but fundamentally Walker and I are Marines. And our capstone doctrine, our, our ethos of warfighting is a book called Warfighting, Marine Corps Doctrinal Publication 1. And in, in there, there, there's a chapter, there's a section at the beginning on, on friction. And it talks about, you know, that friction may be mental as an indecision over a course of action. It may be physical. You know, friction may be external imposed by enemy action, the terrain, weather, or mere chance. Friction may be self-induced caused by factors such as a lack of a clearly defined goal, lack of coordination, unclear or complicated plans, complex task organizations or command relationships, or complicated technologies. And I think fundamentally you get over a lot of that friction through communication. Um, The successful retreats we document in the book and and that our authors write about and, and examine in the book it's when leadership can communicate effectively to subordinates and it's when subordinates can communicate effectively to leaders. Um, right. If, if, if somebody on the ground is seeing something and it's not being listened to above that causes problems. And the, you know, the Dr. Charlie Niemeyer's chapter on the chosen reservoir is, is certainly a prime example of the Marines seeing something well ahead of time and, and you know, 10 core, not seeing it. No, there's no Chinese, but having interviewed now personally a fair amount of these chosen reservoir veterans that are still alive, they all knew something was coming. You know, it's come out in the scholarship since then that they were getting ignored by above, right? So the communication going up the chain wasn't working, but the communication laterally was, and that helped keep them together uh, as they're coming out of the reservoir. And so communication is essential, um, and that, you know, that's, that's not necessarily the communication or just not limited rather to the communication of what comes over the handsets on a radio. That could be as simple as the interpersonal communication between two soldiers, you know, trooping along in, in these retreats and, and, you know, some of the chapters provide examples of that and, you know, these very personalized narratives, but even if not mentioned at the end of the day, you know, this is a human endeavor. And we want to be communicated with, we want to be informed and and communication is how that happens. And this is going to, mm, this is going to, I'm going to move to something which is related. This is is related, I think, is the issue of psychology. And we see this in civilian circumstances when we talk about for example, evacuation during an industrial disaster, we see it in a, in a military contest, is a psychology. And can you, can, um, can maybe Walker tell us a little bit about the ways in which commanders could deal with these psychological, could help their subordinates, their unit deal with the psychological pressures, with the challenges of, you know, an orderly retreat to, because evidently, if people panic, if it's a disorderly retreat, then that's that's going to be quite a problem. So, can you tell us a little bit about ways in which commanders have dealt with this? Yeah, Boris, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this, and I think uh, you know I'll I'll, get, I'll hand it back to Tim because he may also have some uh, some things he wants to add. But I think you're absolutely right to connect this to communication. Um, I mean, I think that it's in these situations where uh, soldiers, Marines, sailors, uh, airmen, 
uh, civilians are dealing with the unknown, um, that's what starts to eat at the, uh, at the, at the morale, right? When you feel like you don't know what's going on, um, things are not going well. Uh, and so that's actually, it, I think, when the communication becomes more important, because if everything's going well, uh, if you had a really good plan and everybody knew the plan and you rehearsed the plan, uh, you, you don't need to communicate as much. You don't need as much uh, direct um, positive communication. You can use more implicit communication. Uh, you, you can rely on intent uh, and, and, and trust. Um, and so when things start to fall apart is when I think commanders need to be a lot more direct uh, and and that's covers everything from you know more clear and their specific instructions to subordinates who are dealing with the unknown, um, but that also goes into the like Tim was talking about the interpersonal communication where you're you know you're you're out in front more or you're walking the lines more, um, you know and you're and you're showing your soldiers, Marines, Airmen, what have you that you're uh, there to, to maintain that unit cohesion. Um, but I also think that a lot of that. It, I don't want to use the word predetermined, but I think a lot of that goes back to the training and, and esprit and morale that a unit had prior to that action, right? Uh, and we see this uh, in the chapters that units um, that are really well-trained uh, and have been well-led leading up to a retreat or a withdrawal or retrograde are able to deal with it much better. Um and I think that's just kind of a truism, right, of the of the human experience, right? Like when things are going poorly, uh, it puts all sorts of uh, emotional um, and psychological pressure on, you know, what we call the, the human uh, dimension or the human factors. Um, and it puts more stress on the linkages you have uh, within your within your unit or your force. Um and if you didn't have those well built before that trust and, and through training and, and, and exercises, it's not going to hold up very well um, uh, during those, those trying times. Um, but I'll tip it over to Tim and see if maybe he also has something to add on that point. Yeah, I think, thank, thanks, Walker. I think you nailed it right, the human dimension. And I'm going to go back to, to MCDP 1 warfighting here. And, you know, on page 1 13, it, it says, no degree of technological development or scientific calculation will diminish the human dimension in war. Any doctrine which attempts to reduce warfare to ratios of forces, weapons, and equipment neglects the impact of the human will on the conduct of war. And I think that's what kept coming through in the chapters in this book was that this is a human endeavor, right? Retreats are human. And the gamut of emotions that go through as you are retreating, even if you are retreating from a position of strength or to obtain a position of strength. And, and certainly we have some of those chapters in there where, where armies are holding together remarkably well. They're buying time. Um, you know, the chapter about 1760 Saxony jumps to mind immediately for that. They all rely on human will and that human dimension, um, which is oftentimes a function of leadership and, and the ability of a leader, whether that's that corporal or that, lieutenant or that, you know, two-star general or that national leader saying, we're in this together, we're going to, to retreat together, um, and this is why, or this is how, and, and, and this is the intent, and this is our end state. I think that human dimension 
you know, to, to, to get to the gist of your question, Boris, that that human dimension is so essential. And, and that comes out in these chapters, even in the cyber chapter, right, which is about electrons and bits of code, but it's bits of code functioning at the, you know, for, for human purposes. Thank you for this. And of course, the difficulty is that if you are, if you are a soldier, if you are um, an infantryman in the trench, you know it's nineteen forty-four or it's nineteen thirty-nine. You might not necessarily know what the context of you holding this position is. Or might not necessarily have a wider view. Very true, right? I mean, we're we're writing with with the benefit of you know our authors rather are writing here with the benefit of archives and and history has happened. It is retrospective analysis as opposed to predictive. Um, I'm going to say predictive event or rather you know a lived experience. But talking again to these chosen Marines and these soldiers that were at the chosen reservoir, um, it was human. It was human contact that got them through you know, this absolutely horrific retreat um, that, that Dr. Niemeyer writes about at the operational level in the book. And it's human contact and human interaction and human communication. And I would just add quickly, I think to your point, Boris, uh, that at least what we kind of preach in, in, in the U.S. military, in the Marine Corps, is I think you'd say, you know, if you have that private or, or corporal uh, in, uh, you know, in, in the trench or on the line and they don't know what they're doing there, or they don't understand, you know, kind of their role in this larger enterprise. Uh, I, I think you could say that's also a, a failure of leadership somewhere, right? Not necessarily their direct superiors, though it could be. But that's, I think, part of the the communication that we're talking about is also communicating in these kind of uh, difficult situations what your role is and what you're doing there. And obviously that's not always possible because there's a million things that get in the way, but certainly that's the best case is that you are able to communicate, um, you know, all the way down to the lowest level why we're doing what we're doing. And that takes a chain that goes all the way from senior political leaders back in, you know, your nation or empire's capital down to the, you know, the private first class or what have you. Which is a sort of a jumping point for me to jump several levels up, if you will, several levels upwards. You know, something which you talk about, in, uh, which uh, which your authors talk about in the book is the difficulty which military leaders have communicating not with soldiers, not with marines or airmen, but with their civilian superiors about the necessity to sometimes withdraw, to, uh, to have a retreat, which might have, you know, some political significance, which the leadership does not want to face up to, or what have you. Can you tell us a little bit about the difficulties with um, uh, retreats in terms of the military-civilian military, uh, military communication? Pardon me, English is my third language. Can you tell us a little bit about these difficulties? Sure, and and I think I think it's a really great question, Boris. And and obviously, you know, there are people that uh, a really good uh, scholarship out there, whole books about you know military, civil military relationships and, and communication. But for us, um, just in the context, for yes. us, just in the context of retreats, <laughs> of course. Um, so I think. It, you know, yeah, like other operations, retreat is 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 more than a military operation. It's it's 
political. Um, but I think you're kind of right to point out that retreat is, and Tim and I saw this and started to think about this back when we started brainstorming. It's really this kind of dirty word, right? You don't want to talk about retreating in the Marine Corps. It's always attack, 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 go forward. You know, you'd say, uh, we're, we're not retreating. We're just attacking in another direction. Um, and I think that, you know, can be valuable if you're trying to, trying to develop a really offensive mindset, um, and a high level of esprit, esprit de corps, but it's also, you know, as we see in the book, uh, and as I think we might talk about um, a little bit later in the podcast, it's it's there's an inev- inevitability there, um, and so I think often it's kind of like a conversation that military leaders are not uh, prepared to have amongst themselves, and then it becomes even more difficult if you have to explain uh, why you want to retreat. To your civilian bosses after you promised them probably that you were going to be successful um, because you're basically uh, it, it, it could it could seem like you're asking uh, for permission to fail essentially you're asking permission for failure um, and we see you know over the course of history there have been different political leaders who would say you know variations of not not one step uh, backward um, and often that's not it's not very successful because it kind of traps military uh, leaders and, and planners in a in a situation where perhaps they're overextended and in the best scenario or the best situation or decision rather would be to withdraw. You know, and we see one of these. Um, uh, we actually don't have a chapter about it in the book, um, but the Dunkirk evacuation, right? I mean, you can imagine a scenario where uh, Churchill had said to his you know leadership, uh, "No, sorry, you know, you you guys have to hold." on the beaches in Dunkirk and instead of evacuating, you know, 400,000 or so British and allied soldiers to the UK where they can then go on and form the core of this expeditionary army that takes the war back to the continent in 1944, uh, they're wiped out uh, and killed or taken prisoner by uh, German forces. So it's, it's really important. Um, and I think the best chapter we have that deals with this theme is Dr. Amy Fox. Uh, she has a great chapter on Gallipoli. Um, and, you know, as, as Marines, Tim and I have obviously read a lot about the kind of tactical situation and the amphibious operation around Gallipoli. Um, but Dr. Fox really leans more into the, uh, the kind of civil military relationship and, and the decisions between uh, the commanders in Gallipoli and the leaders back in, uh, in London um, and Paris. It's really a good um, uh, chapter. And I think then related to that, this issue of how you kind of, I don't know if you say ask permission or explain that you think you need to do a retreat to civilian leadership, um, is also how do you contextualize it after it's already happened, right? So we already mentioned, uh, Dr. Bateson's chapter, um, but we also have a good chapter by Dr. AJ Cade. Um, and he talks about kind of the tarnished legacy, uh, of a civil war, a unit, a German unit in the U.S. Civil War, um, you know, that gets the reputation of, of, of being cowards. Uh, and how do they, you know, after the fact, kind of regain their uh, honor and, 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 you know, contest this narrative that they just ran away um, when really it was an untenable uh, uh, tactical um, situation. So I think, uh, yeah, I think that's really an important thing that, that we do try to bring out in the book. And from this, I want to loop around back to something both of you talked about. And I don't know, maybe Walker will 
talked to us a bit a bit more about this. He talked about um, a cultural unreadiness, not only in the Marine Corps, but generally in military culture, to talk about retreats. And in the book, in, in one of the articles in the book, it's mentioned that the first, already in the 18th century, there were British military publications which said, you know what, if you are deployed with an amphibious force, then maybe you need to practice going back on the ships and the retreat as much as you can because it's going to be the hardest thing you ever do. So this is a known thing, this is a known phenomenon, and then we know that for the next 200 years, both the British and the American militaries proceed to just, at best, pay insufficient attention and sometimes no attention at all to this issue of retreats. Can you maybe explain a little bit why this has occurred? Maybe this is, does it have to do something with association, that, with the idea that if you are retreating, you've failed in some way, you've, you know, even though it's obviously not true, yes, does it have to do with this idea of not wanting to admit failure? Yeah, I, Walker, I'll, I'll take this one. I think, I think Boris, you nailed it, right? Let's let's look at doctrine. Um, doctrine is a product, but also drives is a product of, but also drives culture and militaries. You know, the the U.S. Army just released last yeah late last year um, FM three zero, which is operations, which is their capstone concept of how they want to fight wars. They use the word retreat five times in the entire book. Um, four of which reveal or which uh, are used in the context of the North Korean people's army retreating after the landings at Incheon in September of 1950. Um, MCDP one, right. Marine Corps war fighting, uh, the war fighting book that I've quoted a couple times now, never once mentions the word retreat. We have an, a psychological aversion to using that word. And I think it, it's good that at some level we do, right? At the some of the smaller levels, maybe you know you have to instill in, in young leaders and young troops the aggressiveness, and 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 there's a vision that a retreat is not aggressive. Um, but once you become senior, and this is where you know again, Dr. Amy Fox's chapter addresses this. Um, you have to be able to talk about retreats. You have to be able to discuss them in a operational and strategic, and in some cases, a grand strategic um, way so that they become palatable and they become practical, right? We talk about it in, in the intro and in the conclusion of wanting to avoid this, um, the direct linkage between retreat and defeat. Um, that, that just because you were retreating does not mean you were defeated. And in fact, maybe sometimes retreat is your best way to avoid or to stave off, right? If I trade space for time, I trade space for position. Um, I can then approach this with a, with a better position from which to respond to which to counterattack, to which to negotiate, whatever it is. Um, but there is a cultural bias, I think, against that belief. And, and the equation then is that retreat equals defeat. And that is certainly not the case. And I think the chapters in our book show that, uh, especially if you can, you know, to go back to some of your earlier questions, use communications, use leadership and keep um, 
keep your forces together and keep your forces informed, you've got a much better chance of retreating and it not meaning defeat. Which, you know, maybe the following is a bit, you know, breaking some of the traditions we have here, some of the things which I rarely get to do on this show. You know, I want to tie the things in your book and the things you've told me here to some of something more like a, there's going to be a bit of a current events uh, relevance. I appreciate that this couldn't have been foreseen at the time you were working on the book, but of course, in late 2022, we've had Russia retreat from Kherson, from most of the Kherson Oblast, just to fold its armies across the Dnipro. And it's, of course, still controversial as to why this happened, whether they were pushed out or whether... Surovikin pushed his pulled his forces out to avoid them being encircled. We don't know what happened. So, what, do you think that what happened these events? Do you, can you do you think that they illuminate in some ways the conclusions of your book? Can you maybe tell us as an, as experts what you think of this? Yeah, Boris, I I think that's a question, and certainly it weighed on us um, as we were finishing the book because not just uh, Ukraine. But since we started the project, we've also seen uh, conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, the, you know, we can't not talk about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, that happened uh, while we were editing the book uh, that we obviously didn't foresee um, the Russian invasion, the most recent Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and then obviously just even more recently since the book has been out, um, the conflict between Israel and, and, and Hamas um, in Gaza. And so, you know, obviously these are tragic um, conflicts, but they're also, I think, and I think Tim would probably agree, uh, validating in, in a way, uh, sort of probably more so the U.S. Uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan um, and the, uh, some of the some of the specific tactical actions like you mentioned in Ukraine. Um, one that Army University Press uh, was way ahead of the game and talking about uh, and doing their large-scale combat operations book set, which then ended up inspiring our book, even though we're not uh, part of that book set. Uh, we were kind of inspired by it, as Tim talked about. And also, initially, we had thought, well, maybe we'll add this as a volume, so it's even a little a little a closer tied. Um, but uh, all of these conflicts to larger and lesser extensive involved uh, withdrawals and retreats. I, you know, I think when we, we keep talking about the psychology of retreat and communication with political leaders, that makes me think, yes, of Ukraine, but as, as an American, as a, as a Marine, more of Afghanistan, right? I mean, I think any listener, no matter how closely they keep tabs on this type of stuff, uh, can certainly understand that there's political implications of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Right. And, and that there was somewhere probably some kind of disconnect between maybe not just military and political leaders, but also um, folks on the kind of intelligence side who were supposed to understand how this was supposed to happen. Um, and, and, you know, we obviously don't have a chapter um, on that, but I do talk about it a little bit um, in the conclusion. And I hope that we see uh, more scholarship on it. Um, but going back to specifically your questions about Ukraine, um, I think that actually some of the, if we're looking even just at the Russian military, um, 
you, you can almost do a contrasting case study, right? Earlier in the in the conflict, um, they had this big kind of withdrawal uh, retreat um, from around Kharkiv. Um, and that was this first uh, uh, time, I think, when the Ukrainians took back significant territory. And so that, you know, looked like, you know, as an outside observer, it looked kind of like a, a, a disaster or at least a very bad uh, situation for the Russian military. You know, they were basically getting out of the way of um, advancing Ukrainian forces and, and giving up some of the gains uh, that they had made in the Ukraine, uh, in Ukraine. And then you contrast that with the example that you mentioned, Boris, um, their retreat from Kyrgyzstan uh, in the East Bray, East, in the, it would be the West Bank um, of the Dnieper River. They, uh, that was uh, a withdrawal under pressure, um, but they were able to do it. My understanding is they were able to do it while preserving most of their combat power and uh, in, in keeping control of a lot of their heavy weapons um, and vehicles. So they got to make a decision to say, hey, we're overextended here. We're going to pull back instead of we need to go right now. Take what you can carry because we're going to get overrun. So it's uh, you can and in those two examples, you can see the difference between um, I don't want to say a best case and a worst case, but two different um, uh, outcomes. Uh, and I obviously, without you know special knowledge, I would imagine that a lot of it has to do with leadership <laughs> uh, and kind of the human human factors. Um, and then, you know, going back to the other thing we talked about, one of the things that that to me implies is that there was at high levels a political endorsement of, OK, the military leaders say they're overextended. They don't want to maintain control of Kyrgyzstan on uh, the West Bank of the river. I'm going to tell them it's OK to go back. Uh, whereas you can imagine a military leader who says, nope, not, you know, not one step backward. You're going to hold where you are. And then that garrison gets cut off and, and eventually overrun. So I think um, we absolutely see it uh, and we're going to see it more. And I, you know, that's one of the things, um, you know, that Tim would probably agree that once you start writing about uh, retreats and, and withdrawals and retrogrades and you edit a whole uh, book about it, you start seeing them everywhere. Right. And, and kind of to kind of mirror the, the comments that Tim um opened up with is on every, you know, for every victory, every successful drive and, and capture an objective, there's somebody on the other side who's going backwards, right? If you're just thinking of control of territory. So there's, uh, it's, it's kind of like a lens that you can use um, and you start, start seeing it everywhere. And I don't know if Tim has anything to, to add to that. I think one of the things that happened for us, Boris, was we submitted the manuscript to Army University Press within Oh, Walker, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, I don't know if we had pulled the last of our troops out of Afghanistan, but within a week of that event happening on on either side. And so Walker and I are writing the conclusion and writing the introduction and, and, and packaging the final part of this book up for the press to go through their peer review process and their editing. And we're watching... 20 years of American investment and 20 years of, of, of NATO investment um, in Afghanistan leaving. And I think that certainly provided relevancy for us as we wrote about, or as, as we, we've envisioned what this book was going to mean. And it certainly, you know, what it meant 
when we started and what it means to us now, I think are very different things. And that's been an, an interesting part of the process. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it almost gives you a kind of uh, emotional uh, uh, connection to the content, you know, because we all know um, folks who, who have been there. Which kind of, you know, um, I'd like to close the loop here to, you know, come full circle because we've started with a traditional question. We, you know, we, we are creatures of tradition, I always say this. And I'd like each of you to tell me, you know, you know, and this is a show about books, it's a show for readers. And so can you tell me and our listeners, what are the books which you are reading right now? Tell us a little bit about your own, you know, reading journeys. Well, I, I'll take the lead on that. What, I am in the midst of uh, writing a biography, and so I am doing a fair amount of secondary source material reading. Um, the biographies of a Marine general f- who commands troops in the Second World War, but his career starts in 1913. So I have, you know, books about the Marines in World War One, books about you know the the marines in latin america in the 20s and 30s and and war planning for the second world war and then the second world war itself so i have about 18 books partially read sitting on my desk looking at me right now and is there some specific title which you would like to mention something you could recommend oh recommendations boris you're putting me on the spot here um <laughs> i mean i i think I'll, I'll mention this, is hard, this is a hard-hitting investigative journalism which we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> this, this might be the toughest question you've asked all day, Boris. Um, no, I think um, how the few became the proud Heather, Heather Venable's book on Marine Corps mythos and Marine Corps identities is pretty good. And then there's, um, and it's in the other room, so I don't have the title memorized, um, but there's a book investigating Bella Wood or something like that um, from Marine Corps University Press that's also been pretty helpful for me to, to clarify the roles of the Marines and junior, specifically junior officers in the First World War. So those have been very good framing books for me uh, for the concept of this biography. Yeah, so my often I'm reading books that kind of have to deal with things that are current in my <laughs> Uh, in my life. Uh, so I just finished uh, The Mediterranean History, uh, which is an edited volume on Mediterranean history by David uh, Abdullafia um, at Cambridge uh, and another uh, a little bit softer. Um, it's uh, well, I forget what year it was the best American travel writing um, by maybe 2014. Um, and those were cool because I was traveling in Europe, um, but also because they were both edited volumes. Um, so after having gone through this project with Tim, I got to see, uh, okay, you know, what are some other ways that editors deal with pulling together um, a range of content? Uh, you know, the Mediterranean history, you know, um, he's got to pull together, the editor has to pull together, you know, history from 500 BC through the 1970s, um, different, you know, economic history, military history, and, and different chapters that have different focus. So that was a cool book. Um, I just started H.W. Uh, Brand's uh, uh, History of the West, uh, Dreams of El Dorado is the title because I recently moved to New Mexico, um, which is uh, a, a great, it's a thick, but it's it's going down um, quickly. It's fascinating. Um, 
And then next up, I've got this big stack of books about uh, unmanned aircraft um, and the history of the Predator and, and Reaper drones um, that the U.S. military flies because I'm in training to fly the MQ-9 Reaper here in New Mexico. Uh, and I think the first one of those that I'm going to dig into is uh, On Killing Remotely by uh, Wayne Phelps, um, who's a retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, and he commanded one of the uh, Marine Corps' uh, unmanned aircraft squadrons. So kind of all, a mix of history and, and professional writing, uh, professional uh, reading there. So I would like to thank both of you for being with me today. And Tim, once you're finished writing, writing the biography, which you are working on, you're obviously welcome here again. Thanks for having. Thank, thanks for the invitation, Boris. Look forward to it. Thank you, Boris. This was fun.